Today we look at two cases where ghosts helped solve their own murders. First off, we head to Australia, where a man who's gone missing may have left the ultimate clue. And then we travel back to the United States to meet a grieving mother who prays every single night that the spirit of her daughter will give her a message. And then one night, her daughter arrived. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're going to get started. Order in the court. Today we're talking about ghosts that helped solve their own murders. So let's hop on board the Carpenter Copter. First off, let's pack it full of all the stereotypical Australian stuff. We got shrimp on the Barbie. We got Foster's beer. We got not knives. These are knives. We're all ready to go. We're flying to Campbelltown in New South Wales, Australia. Flying over. It's a dusty little village, I'm assuming. We land. We hop out of the helicopter. And it's 1826. So it's super old-timey. It's extra dusty back then. June 17th. Walking around Campbelltown. It's a nice little place, right? Not a place you would want to live. It's where convicted felons from England are still being transported. So everyone there is a felon. That's why we have our, those aren't knives, these are knives. We all pull them out, walking down the street with our with our blades ready. No one's going to mess with us. Although the helicopter currently is, they're, they're currently scuttling the helicopter, taking everything they can carry. We go in a local saloon, and there we meet George Worrell. Hey, George, what's up? He's like, hey, guys, have a seat. You can have any drink you want as long as you pay for it. That's how bars normally work, right? So we're like, okay, fine. Now, George is friends with Frederick Fisher. They actually both were convicts from England, but it served their time in Australia. And Frederick was like, you know what? I own some property here, but I'm done. I got my farm, but I, I just, I don't like it. It's gross. It's dusty. There's like snakes everywhere. A helicopter landed in the middle of my farm, <laughs> destroyed my crops for the season. I'm out. I'm going to go back to England. George's like, well, okay, but what about all your property? Like, you built this. And he's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But here, I'll give you a will. Here you go. I'll sign this. And now you own all my property. I'll give you power of attorney, too. Whatever. I'm out. So he leaves. And George Worrell's like, okay. Takes the property. October 1826. Four months later. John Farley runs into the hotel. We've been sitting in (laughs) those exact same tables drinking the exact same beverage for four months. Trapped in our own personal hell. John Farley runs in. <sighs> Guys, oh my god, you won't believe what happened. Oh my god. Oh my god. It sounds like you're having an orgasm, John. He's like, no, no, just the person who's making my voice. Making it sound weird is all. John's like, not having an orgasm. I saw a ghost. And at that point, we reanimate. We were frozen in suspended animation for four months. We turn around. I saw a ghost. I saw a ghost out at the bridge. Now, what he saw, John Farley said he was walking down the street. And he saw a ghost sitting on the rail of the bridge. I'm going to assume it's middle of the night because it's super spooky then. It might have been early in the day, but let's assume it's nighttime. Super spooky. And he's walking down the super spooky bridge. He's walking and he sees this ghost sitting on the rail. And then the ghost just kind of points over to an area down underneath the bridge where the creek is. Disappears. Now, John Farley tells the story, and it really kind of scares everyone. Everyone's like, oh, man, I live next to the bridge. I have to cross the bridge to get home. 
Dang it. And I don't have flashlights because, you know, it's 1826. You just got to walk in the dark. Sucks. They're all jumping in kangaroo pouches. The kangaroos are too scared. They're like, get out, pushing them out of the pouch. That and the kangaroos are horribly scarred from all the people jumping in their pouches all the time. They're like, ugh, no more ride, no more Uber. Kangaroober? Huh? <laughs> Anyways, that was good. I like that one. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. Because I know you guys didn't like that one. Let's move on. I could I could have heard I through space and time I heard you groan. Someone's listening to this episode three years from now. I could still hear you groan at that joke. Anyways, the point is is that people were scared. And multiple people in town, while crossing the bridge, start seeing the ghost of Frederick Fisher pointing off underneath the river. Sometimes when they walk, they see the ghost just standing there, and then he jumps off into the darkness below disappears. And the local constable is like, that's ridiculous. That's super stupid. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, when first time when John Farley talks about it, he's like, okay, John, you saw a ghost, whatever. Like, I don't believe in ghosts. But townspeople kept saying, you know, I think there's something down there. Listen, Frederick Fisher's missing. Well, George said he went back to England. Yeah, but George is a convicted felon. You're a convicted felon. I'm chief of police. I'm a convicted felon. We're all convicted felons. If that's the thing that we need to trust each other, then no one's going to trust each other at all. But the townspeople were persistent. Just go down there and see if there's anything down there. So the cop put a little siren on the top of his kangaroo. The kangaroo's hopping. He goes down to the riverbed area. And I can imagine there's a bunch of people on the bridge pointing, pointing, being like, no, he was pointing this way. He was pointing, no, he was pointing this way. He's pointing this way. And eventually the guys, the cops like, right here, is this way they're pointing? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They start digging and lo and behold, they find the body of Frederick Fisher. George Worrell, very shortly afterwards, was arrested and confessed to the crime. And then he was found guilty and he was eventually hanged. Now, what's weird about this, other than the fact that the ghost helped solve the crime, there's two actually weird things about this. To this day, in Campbelltown, South, New South Wales, if you're down there, you already know what this is, they have a Festival of Fisher's Ghost. It's ten days long. That's longer than spring break, right? Ten days of a Fisher's Ghost Festival. They really must be nothing in this town. They have things like a parade. So a parade for a man who was murdered. That's always great. Children's events. A fireworks show. Each firework goes up. It's just the like, it's the shape of a skull. The shape of like a bat bludgeoning in a man's head. They have a thing called Miss Princess Quest, which is like, I'm assuming it's like the, you know, the girl who like waves her hand at people as the parades go down the road. And they've actually canceled that because no one wanted to be that anymore. No joke. The last time they had it was in 2016, and girls are like, no, nah, I'm good. I'd rather not be the symbol of a, of a murdered man's parade. And a Fisher's Ghost Art Award, which I imagine is just little kids drawing pictures of a slowly rotting body in the dirt. That all stuff is interesting about this, the fact that people could celebrate this for 10 days. Secondly, the story is half fake. Now, this is what's interesting. The murder is true. Frederick Fisher was murdered, George Worrell did confess to murdering him, all that stuff. They did find his body buried. However, people now believe that John Farley, the initial guy who reported the ghost, knew of the murder and was threatened. If you tell anyone about this murder, I'll get you too. You'll end up at the bottom of that bridge too. So he couldn't directly report it. So instead, 
after about four months, he's guilty. He can't sleep. He's thinking, poor Frederick's just rotting away down there. No decent burial. George Worrell has all this property, but I can't rat him out. He tells the story of the ghost, and mass panic strikes. Other people start seeing the ghost. John Farley, his report, the cop isn't going to do anything, but after multiple townspeople saw this and are pestering the police, they investigated. So a ghost didn't actually appear. A man's guilty conscience created the ghost story to get a guilty man thrown in prison. And you're like, Jason, that's lame. You told us this was not evidence. You started this off. You're all mad at me. I'm all backing up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Put down. That's not a knife. This is a knife, dude. Seriously. You're, you're approaching me towards the side of the ridge. Jason, I'm tired of your bait and switches. Whoa, dude. Hold up. Yes, I did lie to you. However, I do think it's more interesting than this. I think this is more interesting. Because not only did you have a guy... A, this story is 100% true, which always makes more interesting. You had a guy with a clever way to catch a murderer. And you you were able to show... You think that whole time John Farley was like, other people are seeing this ghost? Like, what is going on? I made this up. And I wanted people to believe that the body was down there. But now other people are actually seeing the ghost. That must have been really trippy for him to deal with. But a murderer was caught. A man's death was avenged. And Frederick Fisher was eventually placed to rest, not just right into the bottom of a ravine. So, real ghost or not, and it wasn't, it was a story that I just told you, I find it fascinating nonetheless. Now, let's pack up our gear here. No, you walk ahead of me. I don't trust you at this point. I'm, you keep turning around. I'm, I'm going for my blade. You're, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I will not, I will not stab you in the back as a podcast host. I promise to not, to not stab you. And as my listener, or as we recently learned, a group of wild rabbits is known as a fluffle. So as we are one fluffle, both rabbits at heart, we agree not to murder each other, although you still are a little, <laughs> you're a little peeved that I tricked you. But anyways, we're getting on the helicopter, we're getting on, and we are headed out to Greenbrier, West Virginia. Hearing the switches, and I keep looking over my shoulder because I don't entirely trust you. You're like, Jason, no, I swear I'm not going to stab me in the back. You're definitely not going to stab me in the back as we start to take off because now we're, I don't know how high helicopters go. We're 1,100 feet in the air, right? That's pretty high. You're like, Jason, you're flying a helicopter. You've been flying it for 400 episodes. You do, you never, ever looked up how high a helicopter can go. Great job, pilot. Great. Now you're not going to stab me. You're just being really sarcastic and kind of mean. Okay, guys? The little teardrop flies from me. We're flying to Greenbrier, West Virginia. The year is 1897. And there we're going to meet Mary Jane Hester. She's a grieving mother who's currently sitting in court. And a defense lawyer is kind of pacing back and forth in front of her. Now, luckily, we have some interesting court documents. For you. This Again, this is 100% a true story. We have some really interesting court documents from all of this stuff. So we actually have a transcript of this. The defense lawyer asks her, are you telling the court that your daughter came to you in a dream? And she says, quote, it was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad that she didn't have no meat cooked for supper. She came four times and four nights. But the second night, she told me that her neck was squeezed off at the first joint. And it was just as she told me. Defense lawyer. Walks a little bit closer. Quote, And was this not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind, Mary Jane? No, sir. It was no dream, for I was as awake as I ever was. 
She wore the very dress that she was killed in, and when she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And Jerry's like, <laughs> super spooky. One of the jurors puts a blanket over his head. <laughs> Let's go back in time a bit. Mary Jane had a daughter named Elva Zona Hester. And Zona was became a mother herself, an unmarried mother, at age 22. Well, you know, we're talking 1897, so not a good time to be a unwed mother. Mary Jane's making the best of it. They're doing what they can do in this little town in West Virginia. And eventually, a blacksmith comes to town. He seems to be a pretty cool dude. All the ladies want him. All the men want to be him. And everyone who needs blacksmithing or blacksmith supplies have to go to him because he's the dude in town. His name is Edward Shue, but he goes by the nickname Trout. So you know you're cool when you can pull off a nickname of a big old ugly fish and people are like, hey, what's up, Trout? Within a month, these two are married. Whirlwind romance. Three months later, it's January 24th, 1897, and Trout's ching, ching. Ching! Working at the blacksmith, hitting that metal against other metal that's like hot and forming it into something. And he's like, you little boy, little boy person who works at my shop. Yes, Mr. Trout. Go home and fetch some eggs. You guys want eggs? Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, eggs on me. They're like planning on putting eggs on the anvil, cooking them on the anvil. They're like, mmm, tastes like solder. So anyways, the kid goes home to his house to pick up some eggs. Kid's like, yeah, I'm gonna go get some eggs. And he goes in the house. Hello? 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 Apparently they live in the Grand Canyon. Little boy's walking around. I'm sent here by Mr. Trout to get some eggs. Huh? Mama Trout, you got... (gasps) He gasps. And there at the bottom of the stairs lies the broken body of Zona Hester. Little boy lets Trout know. Authorities get called. When the police get there, Trout's already at home. He's besides himself. He's absolutely grieving about what happened. Sobbing. He washed his wife's body down. Put on her favorite dress with a really, really high neck. Really, really, like, really holds that neck in place, didn't it, Trout? Really, really got that turtleneck on. Put that on, that dress. He's like, oh, you know what she always loved? She always loved this scarf. Oh, yes, she did. And let me let me wrap this scarf around her neck. And everyone in town, well, I shouldn't say everyone in town, but a lot of people in town are kind of suspicious because normally the job of preparing the dead, like washing the body down, putting it in nice clothes, is what it's women work, right? Men don't do that. Men work with their hands. Well, that takes hands. Women don't do it with their feet. But, you know, like men like lift up trees and like smash iron with their bare hands and make swords. Let the women put the clothes on. So they thought it was a little weird that Trout was doing this, but some people go, maybe he's just grieving. And maybe she really did like that that scarf wrapped super tight around her neck. Maybe she'd enjoyed it. She'd been currently been treated by the local doctor, who was actually the guy who was coming to check the body out. And when the doctor gets there, he goes, he, he would, she had been being treated by the doctor for, quote, female trouble. And then her cause of death, decided by the same doctor, was first listed as everlasting faint oh my stars and there was no handsome man there to catch her she falls down she dies then that condition cause of death was changed to childbirth which was interesting in town because not many people thought she was pregnant her mom especially 
Mary Jane hadn't heard anything about her daughter being pregnant, but the doctor was like, nope. She came down with a case of the kids. She came down with a case of kids in the belly. And it killed her. Delicate, delicate woman. She died because she had a little baby in her. People are like, that's not really how it works. You know where babies come from, right? And the doctor's like, nope. I do not. Now, every time they had to like do something with the body, Trout was always there. They're like, okay, let's move the body. He's like, okay, here, I'll stand by and sob really loudly right in your ear so you can't think. They take her down to the funeral home, <laughs> crying like tears are actually falling on the coroner's face. Get on, get off of me. Cops go to like look at the body. They think it's a little weird. You know, again, people don't normally just fall over dead due to child. And he would be crying. Oh my God, I'm, I'm so sad. I'm going to keep throwing myself right on the body, covering up her neck with my big, beefy blacksmith arms. Why, God, why? Anyways, but again, they have no... He was at the blacksmith's place, right? He's acting suspicious, but he was at work. Wife just falls down. Her mom, though, is like, this dude is not right. Apparently her mom is saying, Hill, this guy has a problem. I think he's... Well, he has more than a problem. I'm pretty sure he murdered my daughter. And she prayed every single... This is sad. Like, I can imagine the grief. Actually, no, I can't imagine... The grief that a parent would go through. That's really like, I used to say I don't have kids because I couldn't afford them. I don't have kids because I couldn't imagine losing them. That seems like that'd be the most awful thing in the world. I can't even comprehend that. That actually keeps me, my fear of losing a child keeps me from wanting a child. It's pretty sad to live in a state of fear like that. But, you know, whatever. So anyways, I got bigger things to worry about. So, the coming of zombie apocalypse for one. So, the uh, Mary Jane is sobbing every night, and she prays every night, Daughter, come back to me, and tell me what happened. Please come back to me. Four weeks later, Mom's asleep in bed. Daughter floats into her room. The second night, the daughter comes back, and this time explains to her what we, what we saw in the court transcript at the beginning. She was murdered by Trout. He was angry that dinner wasn't the what he wanted. They had no meat. And he broke her neck. And that was one thing that in the brief moments that anyone was able to examine the body, they noticed her head kind of lolled a bit. It was kind of like, Whoa. kind of like a baby trying to keep its head up. There's something off about it. But he was acting so hysterical, they couldn't get a good look at it. They're like taking her, putting her in the coffin. They noticed her head was kind of, kind of wiggling. But again, she had a giant scarf on and a, and a stiff collared a like turtleneck like dress so it came up high but even then it seemed a little wobbly but anyway she says the ghost says it broke my neck and to prove it to the mother the head turned completely around so the head's facing her butt and the mom freaks out obviously and she goes and starts telling people in town zona's telling me that she was murdered by trout now, the local prosecutor hears a story because basically Mary Jane's on his doorstep the next day, like telling him this evidence. And the local prosecutor's like, that's not, that's not, that's not enough, dude. The fact that your dead daughter was able to pierce the veil and enter the realm of the living technically should be enough. But I don't believe in ghosts. Most people don't believe in ghosts. It's not going to convince anyone. So Mary Jane straight up went grassroots with this. She began convincing the people in town that this happened. And the people in town started going, hey, hey, local prosecutor. We don't know your name. It's Jason, don't look that up, but local prosecutor. You should investigate this. And he's like, Dak, nabbit. Seriously, another <laughs> another ghost dude? They're all carrying around little pennants that just say ghosts on them. He's like, ugh. So finally, 
He goes, you know what? Tell you what, Toa. We'll dig up her body. If you want us to disinter the grave of your dead daughter, and we'll dig up her body, and we'll just find out she had a case of kids in the belly, fine. But then I don't want to hear any more ghost stuff. And Mary Jane goes, okay. Prosecutor's like, dig it up. They dig up the body, they open the coffin, and lo and behold, she died. Dun, dun, dun. Of a broken neck. Trout is arrested. They begin investigating him. She was actually his third marriage. First wife divorced him. Second wife mysteriously died. And then you had Zona die as well. He had bragged to people he wanted a total of seven wives eventually. So who knows what type of weirdness this guy was up to. But the prosecutor refuses to bring up the ghost story during the trial. He thinks it's stupid. He thinks the jury won't believe it. Given the fact that his previous wife had passed away, given the fact that he had talked about having multiple wives, given the fact that people didn't think he was that great of a guy to begin with, like, yeah, he was kind of cool, but people thought he was kind of scummy. The fact that his the wife's neck was broken, and it wasn't like broken falling down the stairs. When they looked at it, it was broken like two strong hands of a blacksmith throttled a woman until her neck snapped. It wasn't a broken neck accident. It looked like it was compressed and broken with force being delivered by somebody. The defense lawyer, though, was 100% ghost on this. The defense lawyer was team ghost. He had his own pennant. And he brought up the ghost any chance he could get because he believed that this whole thing was stupid and their key point of evidence. The reason why they dug the body up in the first place was a ghost story that a mom told. And when it came time for the jury to decide, everyone was on pins and needles. Who would win? And I think you could tell from really the opening of the story, which was murder solved by ghost. Trout is found guilty, sentenced to life in prison, where he eventually died of some epidemic that was not recorded. He died in like 1907. So he did about 10 years in prison and then died of some illness. Now, was she visited by the ghost of her daughter? It is interesting that the ghost was able to rotate its neck all the way around and said, I was strangled and this is why I was strangled. My neck was broken. And when they pulled the body up, the neck was broken. So that is an interesting notion here, right? However, the rumor was in town that she had been throttled. Because like they said, her neck would kind of wobble. And they thought it was suspicious he was putting the scarf. They're like, a scarf on a corpse in the middle of summer? What are you doing, you madman? No, they thought it was weird that she had all of this stuff to kind of hold her neck up and it was still wobbling. So the rumor was already that she must have not just fallen down, that she must have had her neck broken. So did she have a vision of her daughter actually saying my neck was broken, or was the vision of her daughter actually a manifestation of her, her already existing suspicions about who killed her and why? Well, there's an interesting end to this story. I find this absolutely fascinating, and I wish I could take credit for this. I really wish I could take credit for this, but i got to give credit to two other people. One is a website called Skeptoid, which is obviously a skeptical website. I got this follow-up thing from this. And then there was an author named Katie Letcher Lyle, who wrote a book called The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives, The Greenbrier Ghost and the Famous Murder Mystery of 1897. And she basically wrote a dramatic version of this story. This, this is amazing. So, in the newspaper when Zona's death was reported. So, Zona's body is found. Case of the kids. When that article is printed in the newspaper, a grieving mother, Mary Jane, is reading that newspaper. I mean, you, you would want to see what people were saying about that. You were hoping she'd open up the newspaper and it would say, 
young woman murdered, man on the run, we're going to catch him, and all this stuff. It's a pretty big headline, but she was thinking that. You're going to read that article, right? I remember I had a relative uh, actually murder somebody, and I remember reading the article. It's very surreal, very surreal experience. I'll tell that on a future episode, maybe. It's kind of personal. Sorry. The um, She's reading this article, though, and she's on the front page is an article about her daughter's death. And also on the front page is an article called A Ghost Story. This is a portion of this article, actually taken from January 28th, 1897, from this newspaper. Quote, One of the most famous murder cases in Australia was discovered by the ghost of the murdered man sitting on the rail of a dam, into which his body had been thrown. Numberless people saw it, and the crime was duly brought home. Years after, a dying man making his confession said he invented the ghost. He witnessed the crime, but was threatened with death if he divulged it as he wished to. And the only way he saw out of the impasse was to affect to see the ghost where the body would be found. As soon as he started the story, such is the power of nervousness that numerous other people began to see it, until its fame reached such dimensions that a search was made and the body found, and the murderers brought to justice. So, this is the theory now. And this was the theory that Katie put forth in her book. That Mary Jane truly believed that Trout had killed her daughter. And that grieving mother finds that little death notice in the newspaper. And on that same page is a story about a man who almost 70 years ago, who knew about a murder and used a story to prove it. And so people believe that Mary Jane read that article and thought, this is perfect. I can do this too. And then after four weeks, she comes forward, walks up to the local prosecutor and says, the ghost of my daughter has been visiting me. And she does the same thing that he, that happens in this story. She talks to other people, uses the power of the people. And this, I find that, talk about serendipitous. Because if the mother hadn't come up with, and you're like, Jason, now I get it. You made up this story and didn't have a ghost solving a murder either. But you get what I mean, how this is far more fascinating, I think, than the ghost angle. The first one, you have a guy trying to have a murderer face justice. And this one, you have a, what are the odds that that article was published on the same day that Mary Jane would be reading that newspaper? If it had been printed a day before or a day after? The day before, she was grieving the loss of her daughter. The day after, would she even be thinking about picking up the newspaper? She picked up the newspaper. That article was in the newspaper the one day she was guaranteed to read it. And it gave her a blueprint to catch a murderer, because he did murder her. Her neck was snapped with hands. Fascinating, fascinating story. Both of them don't involve ghosts as the main clue giver. But use ghosts as a wedge to make sure the wheels of justice turn a little more quicker and in the right direction. Ghosts may not be real, but their effect on the human psyche definitely is. People can tell a ghost story, and it will make a hallway or a bathroom or a stretch of road seem a little more creepy. But it's interesting that people can also use ghosts for justice. I don't know if that would make a cool superpower, but it's definitely one way to fight crime. 
deadrabbitradio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.